Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well, and welcome to our first podcast, uh, which focuses on structural cardiac disorders and infectious diseases of the heart. In the first episode, we will take a look at mitral valve disorders. So if you follow along, which I highly recommend to open the PowerPoint and uh, follow uh, the slides, uh, this is the PowerPoint uh, structural cardiac disorders. First, we will discuss valvular disorders. We will review their pathophysiology, clinical manifestations, and also discuss medical and nursing management of the patients who present with valvular problems. Recall that there are four valves in the heart. On the right side, we have the tricuspid valve and the pulmonic valve. On the left side, there are two AV valves, the mitral and the aortic. So what problems do we see? Think of SIP, S-I-P, stenosis, insufficiency, or prolapse. If the valve opens, but not completely, that prevents the blood flow uh, and results in decreased cardiac output. So the valve that does not open completely has stenosis. If the valve should be closed, but does not close completely, blood flows backwards to where it came from. And guess what? This will result in decreased cardiac output. So the valve that does not close properly has regurgitation. And the prolapse of the valve is not necessarily stenosis or regurgitation. It happens when a leaflet of a valve is too stretchy or too floppy. And we will look at this uh, problem a little later. So in this episode, we will um, discuss uh, mitral valve problems, as, as I said. But specific valvular disorders we will be looking at uh, are mitral valve prolapse, or MVP, mitral regurgitation, mitral stenosis, aortic regurgitation, and aortic stenosis. Pulmonic and tricuspid valve disorders are less common and have uh, less uh, symptoms and less complications. And uh, I don't mean that you won't see those patients in your clinical practice. However, they are not as uh, significant or drastic compared to patients to uh, those disorders uh, of the left uh, or AV valves, like mitral uh, valve um, on the left side or aortic uh, uh, valve on the left side as well. So just let's start with the discussion of the mitral valve prolapse or MVP. It is a condition in which two leaflets of the mitral valve do not close evenly. The valve remains closed during systole, so there is no or minimal regurgitation. However, one or both leaflets bulge upward into the left atria. MVP is also known as a click murmur syndrome. There's another name for this uh, condition, uh, and it is Barlow syndrome, B-A-R-L-O-W, Barlow syndrome, probably named um, after the guy who discovered it. 
So population at risk includes those with family history, female gender, particularly between 20 and 40 uh, years of age. Males over 50 years old may develop MVP. Also those with connective or muscular tissue disorders are at risk. Those, uh, for example, um, who have Marfan syndrome or muscular uh, dystrophy. MVP is thought to be an imbalance of the autonomic nervous system. Most patients with MVP have no symptoms and require no treatment. Um, however, um, uh, so this, uh, this particular uh, disorder uh, often is found on a routine physical exam that reveals the click, murmur, heart sound, which is caused by the snapping sail effect uh, and regurgitation. There are no specific changes uh, present on an EKG. Cardiac echo, which is done to confirm the diagnosis, shows an abnormal valve movement. And uh, no correlation is found between MVP and coronary artery disease. Some patients will develop symptoms over time. And most common symptoms uh, include fatigue, palpitations, anxiety. Some may have panic attacks resulted from shortness of breath and dyspnea. Some patients may have syncopal episodes. Uh, patients report chest pressure or chest pain with radiation that does not correlate with exercise. And some will report gastrointestinal symptoms. Patients often complain of chronically cold hands and feet and report numbness and or tingling in extremities. It is thought to be due to a decrease in circulating blood volume. Because the sympathetic nervous system uh, is activated, it will uh, certainly increase the heart rate. And what happens, the blood shunts to vital organs away from the extremities, which results in this um, condition called hands and feet. Over time, regurgitation may, may occur and produce a late systolic uh, murmur. If you guys follow along, I'm on slide eight that talks about nitroglycerin. Uh, usually patients do not require any treatment if obviously if they have no symptoms. For palpitations and chest pain, um, beta blockers or calcium channel blockers are prescribed to slow the heart rate uh, and um, to increase ventricular filling and ejection. If the patient develops dysrhythmias or heart failure, treatment will include other medications for, for those problems. Patients with MVP do not receive nitroglycerin for chest pain because it will decrease left preload and stroke volume. So that's kind of an important thing here, no nitroglycerin for MVP patients. In the past, all uh, patients with MVP uh, received antibiotics um, prophylactically before any invasive procedures. However, evidence-based uh, recommendation now is that those with low or moderate risk do not benefit from uh, prophylactic uh, antibiotics. 
most patients with MVP have no symptoms, as I said uh, earlier, and uh, uh, will not develop any complications. Uh, those are with normal uh, valve leaflets. Patients with thickening of leaflets, with or without regurgitation, are at high risk for complications and uh, certainly should be followed up uh, for any complications on a regular basis. But some may develop bacterial endocarditis, especially those who have undergone invasive medical or dental procedures. If uh, mitral regurgitation becomes severe, patients may develop heart failure. Patients with MVP are also at risk for a stroke that may occur if a thrombus develops on, uh, on a thickened valve leaflets and uh, breaks off. Some patients may have cardiac dysrhythmias, which can be lethal, and uh, chronic chest pain may lead to permanent disability. It is important to educate those patients so they will stay with no complications and will stay out of the hospitals. Patient education will include the following. Limit caffeine and alcohol, especially if palpitations are present or any changes on EKG. Patients should be um, uh, advised to avoid any over-the-counter medications uh, for example, those like cough medicines with alcohol or ephedrine in them, these medications may lead to cardiac dysrhythmias. Because patients with MVP um, have a decreased blood volume circulating, uh, we recommend not to limit salt intake and stay well hydrated, uh, with the exception of those patients who have um, hypertension. Patients are also encouraged to get enough rest, enough sleep, uh, increase uh, aerobic exercises, uh, which uh, will uh, decrease uh, symptoms. So that's in a nutshell um, a discussion of mitral valve prolapse. Let's move on and I'm on slide 11, mitral regurgitation. So uh, this is our next discussion. In mitral regurgitation disorder, the leaflets of the valve do not stay closed, which allows the blood to backflow into the left atrium during systole. Mitral regurgitation is also called um, mitral insufficiency. Uh, mitral regurgitation or insufficiency produces a holosystolic murmur, which uh, best uh, heard at the apex. The murmur is high-pitched, blowing, and may radiate to the left axilla. As I said, blood backflows each time left ventricle contracts. This leads to stretching of, a, of the left atrium and causes atrial hypertrophy. If regurgitation is severe, the patient will have congested lungs and potentially develop pulmonary hypertension. The volume will spill over into the right ventricle. So the bottom line is that the cardiac output is decreased. Patients with chronic mitral regurgitation uh, have no symptoms for many years and often um, present with the signs and symptoms of heart failure and that's when they are diagnosed with mitral regurgitation. 
treatment uh, of mitral regurgitation include medical management uh, with vasodilators such as beta blockers, diuretics, um, antiarrhythmics, and anticoagulation. Uh, surgical interventions are um, annuloplasty, which is putting a ring on the valve or a clip to keep uh, it together. Uh, I think we have a video on Canvas uh, that uh, uh, shows you how they uh, do that procedure, putting a, a mitral clip. Um, another procedure is chordoplasty. It's a repair of the chordae tendinae, uh, which are stretched or torn, or the classic uh, um, surgery, which is open-heart surgery, uh, mitral valve replacement, or NVR. Slide 14, guys, uh, mitral stenosis. So mitral stenosis is a disorder where when the valve is too narrow, it does not open properly, and this prevents uh, blood uh, getting into the left ventricle. In mitral stenosis, blood cannot flow into the left ventricle, which leads to left atrial dilation and hypertrophy. The impaired blood flow leads to clot formation in the left atrium. Because blood does not move forward, it backs up into the lungs, leading to increased pulmonary pressure, congested lungs. From there, blood backs up into the right ventricle, leading to its enlargement and subsequently to its failure. All this results in the inadequate left ventricular filling and you guessed it right, leads to decreased cardiac output. Symptoms usually appear when uh, it's about a third or half reduction of the valve opening. So, in other words, these patients with mitral stenosis go around with no symptoms for quite some time. Mitral stenosis produces a low-pitched decrescendo, crescendo diastolic murmur and often has an early diastolic opening snap. Uh, this is just FYI. Don't just know that mitral stenosis results in diastolic murmur. It's low pitched. Uh, it is uh, as a new nurse, it will be uh, for you. It will be probably um, not that easy to go out there, listen and and say, "Oh, it's a decrescendo, crescendo murmur with opening snap." But uh, just read the HAP, go back to your patient, listen uh, to that murmur again if you have one of those patients, and that's how you learn uh, to uh, identify uh, murmurs. So mitral stenosis is, uh, also is treated either medically uh, or surgically. Medical management will be the same as for heart failure. Uh, it is important uh, to control the heart rate um, in those patients. Patients who develop atrial fibrillation uh, will uh, require anticoagulation, and uh, the surgical interventions will include uh, a repair, which is a, a commissurotomy or percutaneous uh, mitral balloon valvuloplasty, and um, the classic one, uh, mitral valve replacement.
Um, okay, so that is uh, all about mitral valve disorders. Uh, this is uh, the last slide is slide 16 in our uh, PowerPoint. Uh, if you have any questions, guys, uh, you uh, please post them in our discussion uh, uh, board uh, module, and we'll talk about that. Um, so this concludes episode one of the Structural and Infectious Disorders of the Heart uh, podcast. Thank you, guys. Hi everyone, uh, this is uh, episode two, and in this episode we will uh, uh, talk about aortic valve uh, disorders. And uh, if uh, again, if you follow uh, the slides, uh, it is uh, episode two starts on slide 17 of our PowerPoint, uh, Structural Disorders of the Heart. So let's start with the aortic regurgitation. Aortic regurgitation is a condition when the aortic valve does not close tightly. Those of older age, those who have chronic hypertension, uh, those patients with history of endocarditis, patients with uh, connective tissue problems uh, like uh, Marfan syndrome uh, with aortic root dilation are at risk for developing aortic regurgitation. Blood backflows into the left ventricle during diastole, which leads to left ventricular dilation and hypotrophy due to the increased volume. Patients have peripheral vasodilation with low diastolic blood pressure and white pulse blood pressure. Patients usually present uh, with signs and symptoms of left heart failure, such as lung congestion, pulmonary edema, shortness of breath, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, and all those symptoms <clears throat> that you already know um, that uh, left heart failure um, produces. Aortic regurgitation uh, usually has a high-pitched, blowing, decrescendo diastolic murmur, best heard at the third or fourth intercostal space at the left external border. Medical management uh, of aortic regurgitation will include activity restriction. Patients are advised to rest with uh, their legs elevated to improve venous return. Also, we recommend uh, sodium restriction to decrease fluid overload. And medications are pretty much the same as for heart failure. Also, aortic regurgitation can be treated surgically, and uh, surgical procedures uh, will be either to repair the valve, like valvuloplasty, or to replace uh, it, which is either percutaneous or open-heart surgery uh, um, for aortic valve replacement. Let's move, uh, move on to aortic stenosis. Patients with aortic stenosis are asymptomatic for many, many years. It is more common in males who are 60 years of age or older. The leading causes uh, for aortic stenosis uh, include history of rheumatic fever, 
uh, atherosclerosis, calcification, and elevated uh, cholesterol. Aortic stenosis can also be a congenital problem. Aortic stenosis leads to left ventricular wall thickening that leads to left heart failure. Left atrial pressure elevation and pulmonary congestion and subsequently leads to right heart failure. Aortic stenosis has a, a, a triad of symptoms, angina, uh, dyspnea, and syncope on exertion uh, due to fixed cardiac output. Aortic stenosis produces a systolic murmur, which is best heard at the right second intercostal space. The murmur is loud, low-pitched, and harsh. It can also uh, produce uh, a S4 heart sound. Medical management uh, is to control risk factors and relieve symptoms and complications. Surgical management is to either repair uh, the valve or to replace it. One procedure is percutaneous balloon valvuloplasty. It is associated, uh, um, excuse me, it is associated uh, with a high risk for a stroke uh, because there is a calcification in the valve. Because of that, a balloon valvuloplasty is usually uh, performed on younger patients, primarily those who have a congenital valve problem. Um, aortic valve replacement is a traditional valve replacement. It is an open heart surgery and is uh, associated with many risks, as you already know, uh, the risks and complications of uh, um, any heart, uh, open heart surgery. The newer procedure, uh, procedures are transcatheter aortic valve, uh, valve intervention, or TAVI, or replacement, uh, or replacement uh, uh, TAV-R. The, these both procedures are minimally invasive. Uh, the valve replacement is done through a small surgical incision in the chest or um, via femoral artery. Uh, this procedure is uh, performed in a cath lab and recovery is um, as uh, post-cardiac uh, catheterization. Uh, on Canvas, uh, I have a couple of videos about these uh, uh, procedures uh, for you to review. Um, there are two type, uh, types of valves available for replacement. Uh, mechanical valves, um, for example, um, they've been around for a long time, but however, they are uh, associated with an increased risk for stroke. Therefore, patients with a mechanical valve are usually on uh, anticoagulants. Uh, anti the benefit of mechanical valves is that they last for at least 15 years or longer. Tissue valves do not imp impose a stroke risk, but they have no longevity. They last about 10 years at the most, uh, and then they need to be replaced. In general, they are reserved for patients older than 70 years of age or patients who cannot take any anticoagulation. Tissue valves can be from a cadaver. They are called allografts. Uh, they can be from a cow. Uh, those are bovine uh, valves or from a pig. Uh, they're called porcine valves.
As a nurse providing care for a patient who, uh, with any of the disorders of heart valves uh, that we have discussed so far, um, you will need to develop a plan of care that should include monitoring and trending vital signs, monitoring from signs and symptoms of heart failure, and monitoring for cardiac dysrhythmias. Medical and nursing interventions will be uh, focused on alleviation of symptoms and slowing the progression of the uh, disorder. This plan of care will also include daily weight, as for any cardiac patients, uh, structured activities, uh, and scheduled uh, rest periods. And of course, patients will need a thorough education about the disease process, medications, and other modalities of treatment, uh, in, uh, as well as reportable signs and symptoms. When uh, um, caring for uh, patients who underwent a valve repair or valve replacement, you will be monitoring the patient uh, for heart failure, for stroke signs and symptoms. These patients will be on the continuous cardiac monitoring as uh, they are all at risk for dysrhythmias. If the patient had a TAVI procedure, the monitoring will be the same as for a post-cath patient. Monitoring for hemodynamic stability, including neurologic, cardiovascular, and respiratory systems. Post-procedure patient uh, teaching is imperative and will include teaching the patient about signs and symptoms of infective endocarditis, and that uh, is the topic of our um, some other episode in this uh, podcast, uh, the need for anticoagulation if the patient received a mechanical valve and when to follow up with their cardiologist. And uh, this, is, uh, this is it for episode two, aortic valve uh, uh, disorders. And I will uh, um, see you in episode three. In the meantime, if you have any questions, please post them on our discussion uh, board. Uh Hi, guys. I hope you're catching up with this uh, topic. Um, we are uh, on episode three, uh, still on the structural cardiac disorders PowerPoint. Uh, and um, in this episode, we will discuss cardiomyopathy. And if you follow uh, the slides, uh, I will be on slide 27 uh, that is titled Cardiomyopathy. Uh, in fact, I will move to slide 28. Uh, so as we discussed many uh, cardiac disorders, you understood that uh, they all affect the walls of the heart and the walls become, uh, can become too stretchy or too thick which will lead to heart failure, dysrhythmias, and may lead to death. There are several types of cardiomyopathy. Most common are dilated and hypertrophic, known as HOCM, H-O-C-M. Restrictive or um, constrictive cardiomyopathy um, is not common and mostly congenital. The right-sided cardiomyopathy is also not common. Uh, you probably will see stress-induced cardiomyopathy, uh, also known uh, as Takatsuba. And um, uh, let me tell you this, that the exam cannot cause Takatsuba cardiomyopathy. 
even though the exam is stressful, it's uh, more related to some uh, um, pathophysiology, like uh, overwhelming infection or some broken bones or surgery and so on. Um, acute illness and, um, or even exacerbation of a chronic condition uh, like COPD may, uh, or asthma may cause Takatsubo cardiomyopathy. And there are some others that do not fall into this category, so they're called unclassified cardiomyopathy. Um, so dilated cardiomyopathy is probably the most common one. It results from coronary artery disease or hypertension or ETOH or drug abuse, uh, especially when combined with poor diet. Left ventricular function is impaired, which manifests in fluid overload, which in, uh, then leads to shortness of breath, dyspnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, fatigue. Because of the excessive fluid in the left ventricle, mitral valve is damaged and becomes incompetent or insufficient. Uh, so these patients uh, will have mitral regurgitation and systolic murmur. And heart failure may be its uh, initial presentation. Medical treatment for dilated cardiomyopathy is the same as for heart failure. Patients may receive a left ventricular assistive device or LVAD. Uh, those patients may have a, a CRT treatment, which is a biventricular pacemaker, right, uh, uh, where we pace both ventricles. Or uh, if it, it is really severe, uh, the patients uh, may receive a heart transplant. Medications for dilated cardiomyopathy are prescribed to improve left ventricular function, treat symptoms, and prevent complications. I'm not going to go into the details of uh, medications because that is in Canvas and that information is available uh, to you as well as uh, it is in the, um, in the reading uh, assigned for this, uh, for this topic. Um, okay, so um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy or HOCOM is uh, in over 50% of patients with this particular uh, disorder, uh, it is congenital. It runs more in males than females, and often patients have no symptoms for many years, especially this is true to the younger population uh, with this disorder. They may have a mid-systolic murmur without radiation, if the patient develops symptoms um, due to left ventricular hypertrophy, uh, they will have signs and symptoms of heart failure, syncope, dysrhythmias, atrial fibrillation um, is quite common, um, and mitral regurgitation. Or another symptom could be just sudden cardiac death. Those patients um, have low cardiac output but the ejection uh, fraction is normal. It's almost like in a diastolic heart failure, right? Uh, so medical management uh, includes uh, uh, calcium channel blockers. Uh, Verapamil uh, is probably most common to slow the heart rate and decrease left uh, uh, ventricular contraction. 
beta blockers, sodium channel blockers like Norpace, N-O-R-P-A-C-E, Norpace, uh, which has a negative inotropic effect. Patients with Hocum may uh, must avoid nitrates uh, because of their vasodilation and um, because remember their cardiac output is low, uh, but ejection fraction is normal. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so they avoid nitrates and uh, we advise them to stay hydrated to maintain cardiac output. Patient education is important in this case. Uh, patients should uh, be recommended. Um, the family should be uh, encouraged to learn um, CPR as these patients are at high risk for uh, uh, sudden cardiac death. Um, so other cardiomyopathies, and we're not going to go into uh, huge details here. Uh, one is restrictive. It's, as I said, it's uh, uncommon. It's idiopathic, meaning that we don't know why it happens. Um, it kind of uh, uh, leads to the stiffness of the ventricles. Uh, these patients have impaired diastolic filling and uh, ventricular stretch. Uh, the symptoms uh, patients present uh, are dyspnea, uh, cough, uh, non-productive cough, uh, chest pressure or chest pain. And uh, um, if this disease progresses uh, or when the disease progresses, uh, patients will have uh, um, signs and symptoms of diastolic heart failure. Another uh, um, cardiomyopathy is... Um, uh, uh, right ventricular cardiomyopathy. It's it's very rare, and uh, it's uh, familial in most, it probably more than 50% of the cases. Uh, the common uh, signs and symptoms are uh, ventricular tachycardia and sudden cardiac death. Uh, and often patients with ARVC, uh, arrhythmogenic, right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Those patients have left bundle branch block. And uh, <clears throat> we, uh, when we do a cardiac echo uh, on those patients, we see that right ventricle has a lot of fibrous scars and uh, adipose tissue. Uh, those patients, if diagnosed, receive an um, autom automated um, uh, internal cardiac defibrillator, or AICD. And uh, um, another cardiomyopathy, as I mentioned in a few slides back, stress-induced, or Takotsubo um, cardiomyopathy. It's, it's very transient, so uh, um, it's left ventricular dysfunction. However, it's not permanent. It goes away. It, uh, it's often um, uh, occurs as a result of some illness. Um, and um, it is thought that possibly uh, um, a lot of catecholamines are uh, in the bloodstream at that stressful time that kind of uh, leads to this transient left ventricular dysfunction. And uh, um, patients recover... Uh, the majority of patients recover without any complications. 
Um, so um, nursing management. So what do we do as nurses to uh, take care of the, uh, of the patient with uh, cardiomyopathy? Well, let's uh, take a look at the nursing management from the nursing process. So assessment. First of all, we need to know the history uh, of the, you know, any symptoms when they started, uh, the lifestyle, the family history, etc. Um, assess chest pain. Remember, we assess chest pain with the uh, PQRST scale. We'll take a look at the diet because remember that uh, we, uh, our patient education will be based on the diagnosis and also um, what diet they follow. For example, like Hawkeye patients must stay hydrated and we just don't limit salt. Um, and of course, uh, physical assessment, head to toe assessment. Um, in the plan of care, we will we'll include uh, the interventions that are um, uh, focused on improvement or maintenance of cardiac output or adequate cardiac output. Um, we'll focus on increasing activity tolerance. We will make sure that the patient understands and uh, um, um, will adhere to the self-care um, interventions. Um, we also psycho psychosocial uh, or psychological aspect of patient education is important, uh, making sure that they will increase sense of power so they can do it. And uh, we also, um, the focus will be to prevent complications. And uh, so as for, for the nursing interventions, of course, we, um, you know, the circulation, improving cardiac uh, um, output, uh, focusing on activities, uh, maybe scheduled activities, alternating with rest periods, and improve gas exchange, maybe IS if, if needed, supplemental oxygen if needed, and uh, uh, monitoring vital signs, uh, uh, including ultrasound. Um, uh, reduction of uh, uh, anxiety, uh, either um, non-invasive or um, non-medical or medical interventions here, medications. And, uh, um, of course, we will uh, look into uh, some um, community-based um, care, and uh, that will be uh, done with the collaboration of uh, discharge planner or uh, caseworker and so on. So once you uh, create your plan of care and uh, uh, implement your interventions, it is important, of course, to evaluate. Uh, does what we do to this patient work and what are the outcomes? So we're going to look at the hemodynamic stability. We'll look at the cardiac function. You know, does the patient have any dysrhythmias? Can the patient tolerate activities uh, with uh, maintaining um, the heart rate and uh, maintaining oxygen saturation? Um, we assess the anxiety level and we'll um, discuss plan of care and have uh, the patient uh, teach us that shows us that the patient understands. And um, um, so this uh, concludes our discussion of structural cardiac disorders. Thank you for listening. Should you have any questions, please post them in our weekly discussion.
board forum and uh, uh, we will use this information in class in our zoom class uh, for the fall 2020 we will be doing some case studies and uh, some other activities uh, using this information thank you guys and you uh, until next episode Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this podcast uh, that focuses on structural and infective cardiac uh, disorders. Uh, this, uh, uh, this is episode four with a focus on endocarditis. If you follow the slides, you should open um, the PowerPoint uh, that is titled Infective Cardiac Diseases. So let's just recall from uh, the anatomy and physiology um, the, that the heart has three layers. The uh, layer that is uh, that um, is the inside of the cardiac chambers and forms the surface of the cardiac valves is endocardium. It's a thin and smooth membrane. The thick part of the of the heart uh, tissue, the muscular tissue is myocardium and the membrane uh, that is enclosing the heart and consisting of the outer fibrous layer and an inner double layer of um, serous membrane is pericardium. Any of these three layers may be affected by uh, an infectious process. Infections are named uh, for the layer of the heart involved in this process, infective endocarditis, myocarditis or pericarditis. Diagnosis of these infectious diseases is made by assessing patients' signs and symptoms, uh, doing a 12-lead EKG and a cardiac uh, echo. Ideally, we want to prevent these infections because they are very severe and require a, a long-term treatment a long-term uh, anti, uh, intravenous antibiotic therapy, and also has a long-term effect on the heart. As we already noted, the infections are named after the layers of the heart that are involved in the disease process. Infective endocarditis, which can be acute or subacute, pericarditis, and myocarditis. Uh, rheumatic or rheumatoid endocarditis is a unique infective endocarditis syndrome, which we will discuss later. But uh, So in this episode, we are focusing on endocarditis. Okay, so if you are on the slides, it should be slide about seven or so. Uh, infective endocarditis is uh, a microbial infection of the endothelial surface of the heart. <clears throat> Clinically, we can see fever and a new onset of a murmur, or if the patient has an existing murmur, it will be, um, will be increased in grade, will be louder, uh, or will be intensified. Uh, however, often... Um, endocarditis has vague presentation. As I said earlier, the treatment is intravenous antibiotics for a long period of time, and some patients may require surgery uh, due to uh, damage to a heart valve. So it is crucial that 
we promote prevention of endocarditis. Excuse me, infective endocarditis may be due to a bacterial infection, and usually uh, when a patient has a streptococcus or staphylococcus infections. Also, fungi can cause endocarditis, for example, pseudomonas, uh, candida, uh, enterococcus, uh, sorry, not enterococcus, that is the um, bacterial infection, but uh, um, Aspergillus, which is found in mold, which is usually benign unless the patient is immunosuppressed. Uh, if there's an injury of the endothelium or a valve is damaged, uh, what happens, platelets and fibrins form a clot on, at that damaged site to repair it. When the infective organisms uh, are circulating in the blood, they kind of invade that, uh, that clot. And uh, that uh, um, produces damage to the uh, to the lining of the heart or the valve. So, who is at risk? Well, any uh, any patient who has an uh, who has immunosuppression. Uh, some patients with the, uh, either autoimmune reaction, or patients who are on some therapeutics. Uh, like those who had some uh, organ transplant or patients with, uh, for example, uh, patients on antivirals, uh, patients who are like HIV patients, uh, so patients on chemo, patients who has um, some immunodeficiency, um, patients with neutropenia, um, due to medications or disease process. So it any patient with a suppressed immune system uh, is predisposed to uh, infective endocarditis. Um, so we already noted some patient groups who are at higher risk of getting infective endocarditis. Patients who have some structural abnormalities of the heart, for example, valve disorders, like we, we talked in the previous episode, we talked about mitral valve prolapse or patients with a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HOCOM. Um, those with prosthetic heart valves, like mechanical valves, patients with implanted cardiac devices, uh, like pacemakers, uh, CRT, or AICDs. Um, another group um, that is at risk for uh, endocarditis uh, is those uh, patients uh, with catheters placed for a long period of time. Either it's a Foley or any um, IV catheters, patients on hemodialysis, patients who receive um, a long-term antibiotic therapy. Also, any invasive procedures, particularly the ones that involve mucosal uh, surface, like dental procedures, endoscopies, colonoscopies, those procedures can cause bacteremia, and uh, as a result, the patient may um, develop infective endocarditis. Also, patients who are uh, intravenous drug users, they are at high risk for endocarditis. Um, and um, body piercing, tattooing can also cause uh, bacteremia and predispose uh, a person um, to uh, infective um, endocarditis. 
when we um, I mentioned already that rheumatoid endocarditis is a, is a um, specific syndrome, very unique. It is a result of an untreated streptococcal pharyngitis or strep throat. If strep throat uh, treatment is delayed or left untreated, patients may develop acute rheumatic fever, and uh, uh, that can lead to rheumatic heart disease. These patients will have a new murmur. They will develop cardiomegaly, uh, pericarditis, and heart failure. So rheumatoid endocarditis is not common at present time um, because we have an effective diagnostic uh, approach and treatment, but it's still prevalent in uh, third world uh, countries. Let's take a, the pathophysiology of endocarditis. Uh, uh, take a look at the pathophysiology. So, if there is a damage to the lining of the heart or the lining of uh, a heart valve, the body attempts to repair it. Uh, and what happens, uh, the fibrins, the platelets um, just go there to that damaged site and form a thrombus. When an infectious organism gets to the bloodstream, it will colonize the thrombus. We call it vegetation, or growth, or bacterial fungal fungi. So that vegetation, um, if we do a cardiac echo, we will see that vegetation on the heart structures. It just looks like the reason it's called vegetation looks like those uh, broccolets or cauliflower florets type. Um, so uh, as the clot of the endothelium continues to grow, the infective organism will be, uh, will, um, will be covering um, that uh, new clot. So it will be invisible to the body defense. And uh, so the body cannot fight it because it doesn't see it. The growing clot may erode through structures and cause tears or other deformities of the heart valves, malfunction of prosthetic valves, uh, different abscesses in the myocardium, rupture of cord, uh, uh, cord tendinase. So you can see that it's a very damaging uh, disease process, and therefore the prevention of it is just absolutely important. Acute bacterial endocarditis has a rapid onset within like days or maybe weeks. And um, the uh, signs and symptoms are very significant. So clinical presentation is like rapid and very, very um, devastating to the patient. Subacute bacterial endocarditis has very serious, much longer onset. The symptoms are vague. The, patient, uh, uh, the patients often complain of chronic fatigue, some low-grade fever, and so on. Um, clinical presentations can vary. It, it depends. So diagnosis uh, may be difficult because uh, the symptoms are vague. And um, so what are the clinical uh, manifestations? Um, I mentioned earlier, it can be a new onset of a murmur, or if the patient has a murmur, it will be 
uh, a change in a pre-existing murmur. So it will be either um, change in sound, change in grade. It can be more muffled because of that vegetation uh, will restrict the movement of the valve. Um, but primary presenting symptoms of infective endocarditis are fever and a new or changed heart murmur. Uh, initially, however, a heart murmur may not be present. Uh, but eventually, almost every patient with infective endocarditis will develop a murmur. If the patient has a murmur, as I said, prior to a new onset of the infection, uh, the murmur will change in intensity. Uh, murmurs worsen over time, which indicates that the damage from vegetation is progressing. So that translates into your uh, thorough nursing assessment. Uh, if the patient has a murmur, you will be assessing for any changes in, in the intensity. Um, a worsening murmur also may indicate perforation of a valve or rupture of a cordae tendine. Fever, as I said, is a, pre is a presenting symptom. However, it may be intermittent, and some patients may not even have fever. Uh, for example, those are, uh, who are on antibiotics, those who are on steroid, steroids, all the patients sometimes don't respond with fever to any infection. Uh, patients with heart failure or kidney failure may not have fever. In addition to fever and heart murmur, patients may have weight loss, night sweats, and chills. Heart failure and cardiomegaly may result because of the rupture of cordae tendinae or blood flow obstruction from vegetation. Whether the patient will uh, present with the right or left heart failure signs and symptoms depends on what valves are infected. Left side is more common. About 10 to 20% are with pulmonary and tricuspid valves uh, involved. Some patients will have central nervous system uh, manifestations such as headache, uh, transient ischemic attacks, or strokes from emboli to cerebral arteries. So common signs and symptoms that we see are usually pale uh, skin, fever, chills, night sweats, muscle injury pains, uh, decreased appetite and nausea, weight loss, and patients may report a full feeling in the upper left uh, part of um, their abdomen. As we already know, vegetation is a hallmark of infective endocarditis. Vegetations may break off and embolize to other tissues throughout the body. Systemic emboli are more common with the left-sided heart uh, um, infective endocarditis. Pulmonary emboli uh, may occur with the right-sided heart endocarditis. Embolization may be a presenting symptoms, or it may occur at any time. Patients with infective endocarditis uh, often have PTK on the chest, neck, abdomen, but keep in mind that is not, it is not a specific finding. In addition, patients may have splinter hemorrhages in fingernails, uh, they may have Osler nodes. Those are very painful nodes on the pads of fingers and toes. And if you're looking at the uh, PowerPoint, there's a slide 
um, on my PowerPoint is slide 14 with pictures of it. Um, Janeway lesions are painless, spots red or purple in color on palms and soles. Um, another manifestation of infective endocarditis, it's not very common, but it, you may come across is, um, it's called Roth uh, spots. Uh, those are retinal hemorrhages and usually found during the eye exam. Usually the blood cultures will be done on uh, if patient is suspected to have an infective endocarditis. Keep in mind that cultures will be negative in patients on antibiotics or if endocarditis is caused by a slow-growing bacteria. Before patients uh, uh, will receive antibiotics, usually three sets of cultures are done within a 24-hour period, like one hour apart. And also a fungal culture uh, will be uh, drawn as well. Cardiac echocardiogram will be done to assess vegetation, any valve problems, and heart failure. Uh, blood tests will include C-reactive protein, which is a marker for inflammation. Uh, remember that C, uh, CRP is about 5 to 10 normal. With infection, it will be elevated at at least 40 to like 200 or so. Um, ESR or erythrocyte uh, sedimentation rate is also an inflammation marker may be done, and also will do white count. Uh, 12 lead kg um, may show some dysrhythmias, including sinus tachycardia, well, because of the infection, but also atrial fibrillation, heart blocks, bundle branch blocks, things like that. So a type of uh, dysrhythmia, if present, uh, depends on what structure of the heart is uh, damaged. Um, the goal of the treatment uh, of infective um, endocarditis is to obviously eradicate infection and prevent complications. Antibiotic therapy is usually uh, long-term, at least two to six weeks, and maybe as long as eight weeks. At that point, the patient will, uh, will have a long-term IV catheter like Hickman or some PICLINE. Uh, in case of persistent or recurrent infections, some patients may require surgical interventions, uh, which include valve debridement, uh, valve replacement, or any other necessary uh, repairs. Supportive therapy will be implemented and will be based uh, on uh, specific patient's problems. Uh, while on antibiotics, uh, we usually draw periodically uh, blood cultures and uh, antibiotic um, therapeutic levels to make sure that the patient is um, responding to the treatment. And if, um, even though a thrombus is a problem, anticoagulation is, uh, remains controversial because of the high risk for intracranial hemorrhage. So that is uh, uh, very specific to the patient, whether or not the patient will be receiving anti anticoagulants. Um, up to 40% of patients will develop complications, and the complications include valvular stenosis or regurgitation uh, because of their valve destruction. 
Heart failure may develop because of the obstruction of blood flow. Um, if um, uh, some patients will develop um, heart blocks, first degree uh, uh, heart blocks, second degree, or even a complete heart block, depending on the, how much damage uh, is done to the heart. Um, so septic emboli from vegetation, if large enough, may occlude uh, any artery uh, um, and uh, result in the infarction of a spleen, kidneys, or lungs. Uh, and patients also may have uh, peripheral vascular occlusion because of the uh, vegetation or emboli uh, from vegetation. Um, so, of course, uh, I said it several times already that prevention is absolutely uh, crucial. Um, patients who had a uh, um, history of uh, endocarditis or any heart problem for that matter, they have to notify their doctor, or, or including a dentist. Um, we, I mentioned earlier that evidence-based um, recommendation uh, now is uh, patients with um, low risk should not be on antibiotics uh, prophylactically before dental or uh, uh, some other invasive procedures like colonoscopy, endoscopy. Uh, however, prophylactic uh, antibiotic uh, course is recommended for those who are at risk, like patients with who has maybe uh, endocarditis that took long time to treat, patients who had a prosthetic valve uh, placed, uh, patients who um, uh, have a congenital heart disease, or patients who uh, received a heart transplant, those will most likely will be on antibiotics prior to uh, procedure. Uh, so that is... Um, pretty much all about the endocarditis. Uh, in the next episode, we'll take a look at myocarditis and pericarditis. But this uh, concludes our um, episode four uh, of this podcast. Hi, everyone. This is episode five of this podcast uh, that focuses on structural and infective cardiac disorders. Uh, in the previous episode, we covered uh, endocarditis. And moving on in that PowerPoint, uh, Infective Cardiac Disorders, uh, which is posted on our canvas, we will uh, talk about myocarditis. Um, so myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle. Uh, mortality depends on um, how severe is this inflammation. Patients with mild myocarditis will have no treatment and will recover without any complications. However, if the case of myocarditis is severe, that may result in a shock or even sudden cardiac death. Myocarditis can be acute or chronic. It can occur at any age. If we suspect myocarditis and um, perform a 12-lytic AG on the patient, we will have no specific uh, abnormalities uh, on uh, EKG. And uh, usually patients have no specific cardiovascular symptoms. 
it is possible that the patient uh, recovers uh, spontaneously without any complications. However, if a patient uh, will develop uh, complications, they will include, of course, heart failure, like every other cardiac problem ends up in heart failure. So you will uh, uh, find signs and symptoms of heart failure, cardiomyopathy, or cardiac dysrhythmias. Myocarditis is often a complication from a viral infection. It may uh, be because of uh, bacterial or fungal or parasitic infections as well. Patients with rheumatic fever may develop myocarditis. Uh, sometimes um, myocarditis uh, occurs as a result of uh, radiation treatment. Quite a few patients with ET ETOH abuse um, will also develop myocarditis. But it can be uh, idiop uh, idiopathic, meaning that we really do not know why the patient develops myocarditis. So there is no known cause to it. Myocarditis uh, also has vague symptoms, so it is difficult to diagnose. Signs and symptoms depends on the type of infection, the degree of myocardial damage, and how well the myocardium recovers. Patients often report flu-like symptoms. They're extremely fatigued. They're unable to carry on with their uh, activities of daily living. Uh, they may present with signs and symptoms of heart failure, like dyspnea or thopnea. They may have uh, a peripheral edema, jugular vein distension, uh, S3, uh, gallop heart sound. Uh, often they have uh, cardiac dysrhythmias. Uh, they will, um, uh, many of them will be tachycardic. Uh, but as conduction system gets affected, the patient uh, may uh, become bradycardic. So, uh, as I said, uh, it's something, some uh, problem that it's really uh, difficult to uh, diagnose. Uh, we can do a cardiac MRI with the contrast or a biopsy. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, on EKG, there will be uh, non-specific changes. For example, uh, the patient may have ST segment changes, ST elevation throughout all the leads. Uh, uh, PR interval may be prolonged. Um, if we do a cardiac echo, it will show some structural changes. If um, the cardiac valves uh, are affected or if the patient develops uh, heart failure or cardiomyopathy. Uh, blood test will be non-specific. So, of course, we'll do uh, cardiac enzymes uh, like CK and troponin, um, white count, ESR, cultures, uh, but they will be non-specific. Cultures may show the infection that uh, was a predisposing factor to myocarditis. Um, if uh, we do a chest x-ray, um, we may see changes in the size and the shape of the heart, and we may see fluid accumulation in the lungs. Um, and uh, also, as I said, if, um, if we do cardiac echo, there may, uh, uh, may be some structural changes if present. 
Medical management uh, depends on the underlying uh, cause, if we know what caused uh, myocarditis. The main focus will be on maintaining hemodynamic stability and, uh, you know, what it means, stable blood pressure, stable heart rate, and so on, oxygenation, you know, those things that you already know, and, of course, improving symptoms. Otherwise, it's just uh, supportive care. So the, the hallmark of, of this supportive care is bed rest. These patients cannot tolerate any activities. So bed rest is imperative. Uh, if the patients have signs and symptoms of heart failure, uh, then we'll treat that uh, with the, uh, certain medications and you know what, what they are. Um, important to know that the patients with myocarditis will not be receiving uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory uh, drugs, NSAIDs. Uh, Evidence-based uh, practice does not recommend NSAIDs because those medications may exacerbate the process and increase mortality. It incre they increase necrosis of the tissue and viral replication. Um, so, nursing plan. What, uh, what, what will you include in uh, the plan of care? So, obviously monitoring, right? We monitor for changes in signs and symptoms. We monitor the patient for um, hemodynamic stability, any changes in hemodynamics. We're going to monitor the patient for oxygenation, um, you know, maybe a supple uh, supplemental oxygen, um, O2-SAT monitoring, lung assessment, and, you know, all those things. Um, also Im important to uh, assess the fluid status, because remember, we said that heart failure is one of the complications of myocarditis. So that kind of goes along with hemodynamic monitoring. So assessment of heart sounds uh, uh, is important for new murmurs or if the patient has an existing murmur for any changes in intensity, assessment of lung sounds, right, for fluid overload. Uh, the patient must be on a um, continuous EKG monitoring to ensure that we catch those dysrhythmias early and intervene uh, accordingly. And of course, making sure that emergency equipment is readily available, because if the myocarditis uh, process is very severe, the patient is at high risk for cardiac dysrhythmias, including those um, uh, such as uh, ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation. So we should be able to intervene immediately. Uh, as I already said, patients with mild myocarditis will recover with no or minimal uh, treatment and uh, problems uh, or complications. Patients may end up in cardiogenic shock if um, uh, the myocarditis process is very severe. They may develop heart failure, dilated cardiomyopathy that may be uh, irreversible. And of course, um, sudden death from ventricular dysrhythmias may occur. And um, that's pretty much it. So to sum up uh, this conversation, uh, make sure that you understand that myocarditis is secondary to something. It has uh, a um, broad spectrum of uh, signs and symptoms from mild 
which uh, leads uh, to full recovery or minimal complication recovery, complications down the road, or and severe where patient is at risk for developing heart failure, cardiomyopathy, and cardiac dysrhythmias that can uh, lead to sudden cardiac death. Okay, so that's a very short episode on myocarditis, and I will uh, talk to you uh, in the next episode about pericarditis. Thank you, guys. Hi, everyone. Uh, This is the last episode, episode 6, in the series of episodes on structural and infective cardiac disorders in this uh, this, uh, first podcast. Uh, In this episode, uh, we will uh, briefly talk about pericarditis. Make sure that, if possible, you follow the uh, uh, PowerPoint, infective cardiac disorders, and also uh, make sure that you will review all the material posters on Canvas because in this podcast, I'm not going to go into the, those details about medications, specific medications and such, because everything is posted in, um, uh, in our Canvas uh, weekly module uh, for, your, um, for your review. Uh, when you come to class... And for fall 2020, this class will be online. It's our Zoom session. Make sure that you review all the material because we will not go going to uh, look at the PowerPoints uh, because it's kind of boring and uh, very exhausting, uh, provided that we are online. Uh, but rather, we will have... Uh, um, some activities that involves developing plan of care and treating the patient and things like that, okay? So, uh, with that said, uh, let's take a look at the uh, pericarditis. Uh, Pericarditis is an inflammation of the membranous sac which surrounds the heart. Pericarditis may be acute. It can also be chronic. And uh, it results from infections and often from viral, viral infection, uh, infections. Possible complications, pericardial effusion, cardiac tamponade, heart failure. This is something we already mentioned with pretty much every single cardiac disorder. Heart failure is a complication. Uh, could uh, uh, produce respiratory distress, and also if untreated can lead to multi-organ uh, uh, dysfunction syndrome, which is kind of like pretty bad. Um, Okay, so what's uh, the pathophysiology? As I said, it's inflammation of the pericardium. The pericardium loses its elasticity and becomes a rigid case that is tight around the heart. This leads to thickening and decreased elasticity. The layer becomes calcified and restricts the ability of the heart to fill with blood. It restricts left ventricle to contract, which leads to heart failure. Okay? And uh, um, another point here, uh, when um, the pericardium gets inflamed, it becomes very fibrous and, you know, calcified, which leads to the adhesion between uh, uh, two layers of uh, that pericardial layer, visceral and parietal. Because usually we, we have about 
what 25 ml of fluid that allows that the heart to contract and expand but in uh, in the case of uh, pericarditis that is gone so that leads to constrictive pericarditis um, so the causes uh, of pericarditis it can be um, a lot of things it can be some infection viral infection bacterial or fungal it can be because of the uh, cancer uh, it can be secondary to radiation therapy some patients with autoimmune syndromes they may develop uh, pericarditis some medications uh, like um, uh, procainamide, um, anti-rhythmic uh, um, uh, sodium channel blocker, or hydralazine is another one. Uh, some TB medications like uh, isoniazid, for example, can cause uh, pericarditis. Um, but if you um, review chapter 28 in uh, uh, your Hinkle textbook, on page uh, 814, there's a chart, 28-5. Uh, that uh, chart lists um, the causes of uh, pericarditis. So make sure you kind of know that because it's, um, you know, like everything else is testable, right? All that testable material. Okay, so what are the symptoms? How uh, pericarditis uh, manifests itself? The most common symptom is chest pain. Usually it is of a sudden onset, it's sharp, it's stabbing, especially if pericarditis is acute. If we run a 12-lead EKG, we will see uh, quite often, pretty much in every case, we will see ST elevation. Uh, if you uh, guys follow the uh, PowerPoint, I have an EKG, a 12-lead EKG for you there to look at. And if you look at all the leads, there's a non-specific uh, ST elevation kind of throughout um, all the leads, uh, which suggest uh, pericarditis versus um, like an ST uh, STEMI. Uh, also, um, we can hear uh, in many patients pericardial friction rub. It is a high-frequency sound, uh, so you, you, you are using your diaphragm to um, listen at, and the best uh, heard um, uh, at the fourth intercostal space left of the sternal border. Um, in terms of diagnostics, uh, in terms of diagnostics, um, they are very non-specific. So EKG changes, as I said, diffuse ST abnormalities, maybe low voltage QRSs, meaning that QRS is not going to be tall uh, um, because the heart is not uh, contracting well. Uh, maybe some dysrhythmias. If we run, uh, if we do an echo, uh, we will see a reduced uh, pumping action. Uh, for example, the, uh, the, the report will say uh, global hypokinesia, meaning that um, the ventricles are not contracting well. On the chest x-ray, uh, it can be normal, or uh, if, uh, if it's big enough, uh, we will uh, see a fluid accumulation around the heart. Uh, the lab, uh, the blood tests, uh, white count, you know, white count will be elevated, ESR will be elevated. 
um, cultures will be done to determine what uh, um, exactly uh, causing this uh, problem so the patient can receive treatment for that. So the goal is to treat the underlying cause. Uh, and also the goal is to relieve uh, any symptoms the patient, uh, the patient may have. And of course, to prevent recurrency of this problem. Again, these patients cannot tolerate um, uh, activities because uh, as you already guessed, cardiac output is decreased. So bed rest is important. And uh, these patients um, uh, will receive NSAIDs. Remember in the uh, myocarditis case, we said no NSAIDs because of the, uh, it can cause necrosis. Uh, but for pericarditis, we do give them uh, NSAIDs. And usually the treatment uh, can be about a week to up to two weeks. However, if uh, pericarditis is because of an acute myocardial infarction, we do not want to give NSAIDs because um, NSAIDs are known for uh, uh, causing uh, uh, a rupture of the infarcted area. Okay, so if pericarditis is caused other than MI, NMI, then NSAID, NSAIDs are a mainstay therapy. However, if the patient has pericarditis because of an acute MI, we do not give NSAIDs. Okay, got it. Uh, also, the patients will receive some other analgesics. The patients will receive steroids. Uh, another medication that is given to decrease inflammation of the pericardium is colchicine. This is a gout medication, uh, but it is an off-label use for pericarditis. Uh, we will need to monitor for cardiac tamponade and heart failure signs and symptoms. So just think about what you're going to watch uh, the patient for and how you're going to treat that. Some patients will uh, need uh, pericardiosynthesis. Uh, it's a procedure that they kind of like stick a needle in the chest and to drain fluid around the heart. Uh, can be done at bedside if it's an emergency. Uh, we'll just put a needle and drain it, uh, or it's done in uh, the operating room. Uh, the procedure is called pericardial window. And those patients um, usually have a small chest tube placed um, for a while to drain, um, to allow the fluid um, to drain. Um, what are the complications? So two major complications of pericarditis. One is pericardial effusion. It's a collection of fluid around uh, the heart in, within that pericardial sac. If it's big enough, we can see it on the x-ray or... Uh, CT. And another one is cardiac tamponade. So it's kind of like um, pericardial effusion on drugs. It's big. It's, it causes, uh, a, puts a lot of uh, compression on the heart. And uh, the result is, guess what? Decreased cardiac output. And it's so severe that it's life-threatening. So if the patient develops Cardiac tamponade, it just, it's an emergency intervention, which is uh, uh, the drainage or pericardial synthesis, the drainage of fluid. So it just kind of, we say two complications, but it's 
pretty much one complication, but the difference in in the the how bad it is. So the difference will be the hemodynamic stability of the heart of, of the patient. If, if patients with pericardial effusion, they will be tired, they will be fatigued, they will be short of breath, but they still, especially if pericarditis is chronic, they still uh, will be able to function to some degree. In cardiac uh, tamponade case, they cannot do anything, they drop blood pressure, uh, the the heart rate goes up, and and you know all those things happen. So cardiac tamponade has this back triad. It's called. Uh, these are three signs that are in, indicative of cardiac tamponade: very low blood pressure, muffled uh, heart sounds, and uh, JVD, distended neck veins. However, keep in mind that these are late signs. So if you implement accurate and thorough assessment, you should be able to detect cardiac tamponade early so you can intervene early and um, uh, relieve the symptoms and reverse the, the problems. And um, that's pretty much uh, all I want to say about pericarditis. So the very last uh, slide, um, uh, the very last slide of this PowerPoint is the uh, the table, uh, which is a summary of, of what we have discussed in this podcast. Um, endocarditis, scientific symptoms like a key point, points, bullet points for you guys, uh, myocarditis and pericarditis. So just because they all get kind of um, confused and uh, there are blur lines uh, between them. Um, uh, I hope this table will help you um, uh, distinguish um, those uh, conditions. Um, okay, so uh, if you have any questions about any of these uh, disorders, please post them on our discussion board forum for this week. And in fall 2020, it's week one, we start uh, with uh, uh, structural infective disorders on Wednesday, week one. And um, we will uh, um, apply all this knowledge to our um, virtual patients in our classes. Uh, okay, until next episode. Uh, thank you guys for listening and you have a good day. Bye-bye.